Welcome to another episode of the Confessions of a Recovering Landlord podcast, where you'll learn the secrets commercial landlords would prefer you not know. I'm your host, Jan Gibbons, along with my co-host and experienced commercial real estate broker, Bob Gibbons. That's me. Brought to you by Riata Commercial Realty, where we exclusively represent users of office and warehouse properties. Landlords have representation. Do you? Welcome back. Guess what time it is? <laughs> Crystal ball time. New year. 2024 predictions. We've got several that I think are very topical, very interested. I want you to be right. And I'm going to tell you what right is. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm not going to be talking during this episode. <laughs> per the huge. Okay. Number one, you, sir, are predicting lower interest rates. Tell me why. Well, because you have Jay Powell on speed dial. Yeah, he calls me regularly to <laughs> get my opinions on things. But I mean, part of the answer to that is just it's sort of like we've already seen interest rates coming down. So based on the last comments that Jay Powell made, um, interest rates went down. The 10 year treasuries are down to about 3.9 percent already. And uh, and so you know, they're predicted to go down lower. There's a, a mortgage bankers association that predicted it was going to get down to about 3.7% by the end of the year. So, you know, that's kind of like, all right, 3.9, 3.7, big whoop, you know, that hardly makes a dent, but um, a CBRE prediction was 3.3 to 3.6. But of course, some would argue that they have a bigger um, dog in the hunt. They, they want to be more Absolutely. optimistic. So um but then there's also the camp that says, hey, it's it's really just going to be um, this is the direction that that it should go because they've been so high that uh, but that it's, there's only one way for it to go, which is not true because, you, you know, you and I both know with our first home mortgages having been 10 percent um, that there's a lot different. You know, it can go a lot higher. You know, I remember my parents had a 15 percent mortgage, uh, so it can definitely go up. But um I wouldn't expect that. The other thing is that um, I've, this is not exactly on interest rates, but uh, there's another company or organization called the Altus Group that did a, a survey and 77% of the executives that they surveyed expected a recession in the next six months. Shallow, not a, not a deep recession, but a, a recession, which actually I kind of feel is surprising to me because I've been hearing kind of the opposite that a lot of people are saying, no, we, we've kind of dodged the the recession, we've done the soft landing and and we're not going to have a recession. So a 77% uh, survey saying that people expect that, however small, uh, that was a surprise to me. Remember, you have to define your terms. And a recession is when your neighbor loses their job. A depression <laughs> is when you lose your job. Do you remember that was from the 80s? Yeah. I still remember that. And so what what I call bad you might call good. So again, when you say, are you anticipating a recession? That's so esoteric to the person you're asking. Well, but I mean, there is a definition, a clear well, definition that GDP economists use. Then. Yeah. But um, so, you know, I like your uh, definition. My only concern <laughs> with that is we're self-employed. So what, what, <laughs> what happens I will never to us? fire you. It's like when uh, Texas Workforce Commission called me about my 
um, unemployment insurance. And I said, you don't understand. I will never fire this man. When he dies, I'm going to prop him up behind his desk like weekend at Bernie's and tell him, keep making those calls. <laughs> You've already got the taxidermist on speed dial. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Prediction number two, CRE loan expirations still plague industry. And yeah, I was I reading about this yesterday, a building I used to work in is yeah. probably going to get lost. And I can tell you why, but <laughs> it <laughs> well, had a crappy, crappy floor. That was the that was one mean? of the big. <clears throat> you remember how the colonnade had those three buildings, right. and then they did the renovation where they made that big atrium area where it was walkable, and you could go get some lunch. You could run, do your dry cleaner. You go to the bank, all that right in there. That floor was awful. Oh, we would just... have the ladies in our office fall or, or tweak it because they had on high heels and that floor was just not walkable. So it was just because it was kind of a rough granite surface. It, it was just not laid out for um, back when we still wore heels and suits. Well, I don't, I, I disagree with your use of the term laid out. I think it was laid out fine. As far as the configuration, yeah, it was just true. the material that you didn't like okay, because okay. it made it difficult to walk on right. for ladies. But all right. Well, that's a little off topic on, uh, on CRE loan <laughs> Well, but I mean, Fortis bought that in 2013, dumped a whole bunch of money into it and got an offer. And I think they got above their raise and it's like, well, hold on. And guess what? They're not going to be holding on any longer. Well, yeah, but the world changed since 2016. And well, true, true. Yeah. But... I mean, nobody expected COVID. So that or the the mm. uh, results and and ultimately yeah. I think that's really the the story here. So the loan expirations is a combination of the um, not using the offices, you know, people not using the offices as much as they used to because they learned they didn't have to during COVID and higher interest rates and higher interest rates is really also in many people's opinions a, a function of COVID because the government flushed. Um, the market so much with money that everybody started buying stuff, mm -hmm. which drove up prices. And so it's kind of a two step whammy, both coming out of COVID. And the end result is that these loan expirations on CRE are plaguing the industry. And this has already been happening. This is not new. And in fact, I would say these predictions for 2024 are kind of a yawner because they all are pretty much a carryover for what's already been happening. Oh no, we got a couple coming up that. Okay. We so, better keep going. We're diving into those. Okay. So, so here's the loan expiration thing. So um, this was really interesting. The National Bureau of Economic Research did a uh, study, a report, whatever. And they said that the, the loan to value ratio of the existing commercial real estate loans averaged about a 61% loan to value ratio when they were made. And now on average, it's at 80%. So that basically means that the value of the buildings have come down mm -hmm. relative to the amount of loans that are outstanding. And so that creates a big problem because here we're at a time where that has already happened. And yet um, loan lenders don't want to lend as high. So, you know, mm -hmm. if you, if you take a building and it was at 80% now, and now, I mean, it was at a 61% loan to value ratio now it's at 80% and you're going to have to bring money to the table. Landlords don't want to do that. The other thing that was really interesting that was that 14% um, of those loans overall 
had a loan to value ratio of a hundred percent or more. And so basically what that means is that the loan value and the building value are the same or the building value is actually less than the loan. And when it comes to office, 44%. So 44% of all loans outstanding have yet to be refinanced are already at a loan to value ratio of hundred percent or more, which is not sustainable because I mean, nobody's going to loan on that, right? It's too risky for the lender. They can't refi. They can't get TI money. It's it's bad. And then to compound that, the average interest rate for those loans that were at a 61% loan-to-value ratio was at 3.9% interest rate. Mm -hmm. And now the average interest rate's at 6.71. So all these things combined continue to plague the commercial real estate and particularly office um, loan refinancing yeah. Uh, market. Well, that goes right into prediction number three, which is continued distress for office. And not just because of that, but because not making new leases, not renewing the leases you right. had. If you are renewing a lease, you're making out on a smaller footprint. Yeah. I mean, and when you look at it on a national basis, you know, the 13.7% vacancy rate doesn't sound as horrible as when you look at it and say there was 69.4 million square feet of negative absorption over the last 12 months, which basically just means there's 69.4 million square feet less space occupied. Even though we've had new construction, there's less space occupied. And um, the new build, by the way, for the national has been 29.4 million. So you know, we're, we're losing occupancy while at the same time adding supply. Mm -hmm. Terrible, terrible. Uh, huh. I'm uh, no uh, economic, but. <laughs> economist. <laughs> I can't even say it. Okay. Well, and, well before we, uh, so DFW though, real quick. Uh, DFW oh, yeah. though is definitely a little better because mm -hmm. we saw 66.4 thousand square feet of positive absorption, which is basically nothing. I mean, in a good market, we would have three, four, five million square feet of positive absorption. Here we're at 66,000, which is basically break even. And uh, and our vacancy is, according to CoStar anyway, way 18%. I think it's much higher than that in reality. And depending on whose numbers you look at, it could be as high as 25 or more percent. Are you and including ghost leases in that? What do you call those ghost leases? Where I'm paying for my lease, but no one's there. Uh, shadow space is what I've- Shadow space. Uh, have always referred to that as, but yeah, I mean, the 18% is just direct vacancy, according to CoStar, okay. you know, CoStar says, if you add in the, the sublease, it's like 20.5% vacancy, but still, I think that is much lower than actual. Um, and we have seven and a half, 7.7 .7 million square feet under construction in DFW. So, um, you know, we're definitely way better off and we have a much higher percentage of people going back to the office in Texas than we do in other parts of the country. But, um, you know, we, we're still going to have continued distress for office space for the foreseeable future. So who's loaning, loaning money on the new builds? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, I don't deal in that. So I, you know, I don't have any direct experience in that. But I think the usual suspects are um, loaning money, but only with a lot of pre-leasing and with high credit. So build the suits for, you know, like a Goldman Sachs or a JP Morgan okay. Chase or, you know, uh, Charles Schwab. You yeah, know, I saw he was opening up his fourth building in South Lake. Uh, who was that? Charles Schwab. Oh, Westlake. 
West Lake, South Lake. Yeah, just Lake. past South Lake. <laughs> it's funny. It's South Lake, and then just to the west of South Lake is West Lake. But wouldn't that be Northwest? Anyway. <laughs> it's all Tarrant County. Who cares? Exactly. <laughs> okay. This one hurt my heart. Now, not big picture, but small picture. Number four, WeWork rejects more leases. And you know what I read yesterday? Yes, you did. Go ahead. Well... Common Desk, which I had a real affinity for, had these early on, I don't even want to use the word funky, but just really cool spaces. One was in Deep Ellum, another one in Oak Cliff, and they started branching out. They had their own little coffee bar in there. They were selling their own coffee. It was just, it had a vibe. It yeah. had a vibe. And those two leases were asked to be rejected yesterday. So- I just hated that. So, yeah, I mean, so we work rejecting more leases. You're right. So they announced um, uh, additional locations. They're mm -hmm. trying to terminate leases in Dallas, Toronto, Atlanta, San Francisco. And uh, and yeah, for the first time, Common Desk, which was bought by right. um, WeWork a few years ago. Um, and, you know, I really hate it because I love that as well. And in fact, the story of the first location of common desk was really cool because Nick Clark, who was the founder of that, he used to be a leasing agent. I had, I had shown uh, space in one of his buildings back um, many years ago before he started it. Anyway, when he started common desk, he found the location in deep Ellum, which is, you know, just uh, east of downtown Dallas, mm -hmm. uh, real cool, old space, brick walls, wood floors, um, really, really neat space. And he was actually at the space while it was being renovated one day and a guy walks in and they get to talking and it turns out it was a guy working for Uber, looking for Uber's first location in Dallas. And they ended up leasing space in the first common desk location. And that's really what sparked common desk to early success and continued to success. And, um, and so it's, and they've, I think they ended up with like, 12, 10 or 12 locations in DFW. And then they also expanded to the markets in the, in the country. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it kind of is sad to see uh, mm -hmm. one of their locations. Yeah. And in fact, their very first location go away anyway. Um, so if approved by the bankruptcy court, these additional leases would bring a total of 81 leases rejected by, um, by WeWork. And I had read that they were trying to renegotiate 400 of the leases they were trying to keep. And, you know, some of those are going to come up for expiration. Some landlords, they may not make deals with bottom line is I've read that the total number of leases expected to be rejected by the end of all this could reach as much as 160, which mm -hmm. if that's really the, the case, we're only halfway there. Mm -hmm. So again, this goes back to our prediction number three about continued distress for office. Yeah. This just continues to add more distress to the office market. Absolutely. Okay. Our fifth prediction is conversions are no panacea to office distress. And your first bullet point, I just read this yesterday. I'm dying to see what this is going to look like, but I must make a confession. The flag isn't strong enough to go on XTO. I said that. So to explain what well, that Well, it's residence in. And XTO is a really cool old building that's 11 stories tall, right smack downtown Fort Worth. And I thought it would be boutique. 
And Residence Inn doesn't scream boutique to me. So this almost feels like extended stay. You know, it, it's people coming in and I, I'm, I've got a hotel. I've got to work here for, uh, I've got a job for a month. That's so just going to be there. You wanted it to be more bougie? Well, I'm going to go over there and spend the weekend and go to a play at Bass Hall and eat dinner here. And yeah, yeah, that's what I was. That's what I thought it would bring. Yeah. We'll see. It may still be. I'm sure it'll be nice. It's just not how I thought the space would be used. Well, you know, the thing that I've always liked about Fort Worth is they've done a really, really good job of preserving their historic buildings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I would say they probably, and I don't have any, any empirical evidence of this, but I would say that they probably have had more um, conversions of office buildings to, you know, either apartments or hotels than uh, a lot of cities have or relative to the size of the, of the comp of the uh, market anyway. And, uh, and we've stayed at one of them and, and really liked it. So yeah, I kind of had a similar opinion that, you know, it was like, <laughs> Wait a minute, residence in really? I know <laughs> that seemed a little bit odd to me, but at the same time, uh, I don't know if you remember, but I think it was in downtown Chattanooga. They had a residence in right downtown in the heart of things, and and it was nice and it and expensive too. It wasn't like it was cheap. I mean, residence doesn't mean it's going to be you know ninety dollars a night while everything else is two ten. Um, it it holds its own on the pricing, so I think it is going to be nice. Um, so. But to the prediction that conversions are not a panacea for for uh, office distress is simply that, you know, there's just not enough um, conversions that can be done to really take office mm -hmm. out of um, its problems or to even make much of a dent. You know, they're definitely every time one gets announced, it makes huge headlines and everybody, you know, talks about it and then the same answer comes up. Yes, but it's not really enough to make any real dent in the office distress problem. And, and that's really just going to continue because the cost of conversion is so high and there's so many right. buildings that just don't have the infrastructure or the space to be able to make it happen um, that, you know, it's just never going to become um, anything that makes a big dent. Well, and you are limiting yourself as to who is going to come live there. If you like it, it will be great, but it's going to be a very small segment of the population that wants to live in a high rise because a lot of the high rises that they're converting, it's not a hundred percent residence. It's still going to have office. It's still going to have retail. There'll be a place to eat. And some people will really like that. I don't ever have to leave my building if I don't want to. I can get dry cleaning. I can run to the grocery. I can go to my job and then go back home. A lot of people aren't going to like that. You know, that's a new phenomenon in, in Texas, though, or at least in Dallas. I yeah. don't remember until they, uh, I think the first conversion that I remember that uh, happened was the one main place downtown, which is now office and um, hotel with the Weston Hotel. And then it's got some retail to it, restaurants. But, um, you know, that kind of thing has been in New York and Chicago and big, yeah. big markets. I mean, the John Hancock building, I remember mm -hmm. being up there 20 years ago and them talking about all right floors you know whatever to 60 is office and then 60 to 80 or 100 whatever i don't know the numbers were you know residential and you know there i think the highest um pool in the us was in the john hancock tower at one time on like 55 or something i don't know if it's the highest anymore but yeah so this is definitely uh, new to texas to have mm -hmm. this kind of mixed use but uh, anyway 
Okay, so number six, insurance cost ballooning. If you can underwrite it. I mean, State Farm has pulled out of the residential homeowner market for sure. I don't know if they've pulled out of auto, but they have pulled out of homeowners. And it's getting to where I had heard that some people are self-insuring because if their house burns to the ground, the land it's on is still the same price. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah, they can still sell the land for what the house was worth while it was on it. So it's it's just crazy, and you're going to get into state pools. Florida's had a state pool for a long time. But, of course, this is all residential, and I know you're talking about commercial. But this cost is always passed through to the tenant. It is. And, you know, I know you have a long history in, in the insurance industry through your family and also other companies you've worked for. And you used to actually insure really large uh, owners of uh, portfolios of Mm -hmm. uh, real estate, <clears throat> both office and large industrial. Um, and I, I remember you coming home and talking about how, you know, these flat roofs of, um, uh, where LRO and Tarrant County with a flat roof was just a disaster. <laughs> and that was primarily because of the, the risk of hail, I would assume. Yeah. And also an LRO was lesser's risk only, meaning that it's a completely occupied building by someone other than the owner. So the owner is not there on grounds. You don't always know what your tenant is doing. Yes, there's a permitted use lease clause, but it doesn't mean that's what they're always doing. And so the exposure of who you have in there is heavily underwritten. And then, yeah, that flat roof in Tarrant County, the Lord loves to rain hail on Tarrant County. <laughs> it just got to where. I'm not it sure was, it's the Lord, but well, yeah. <laughs> my mother always hated when uh, insurance carriers would always call it acts of God. She goes, I don't think so. <laughs> so <laughs> you didn't have nothing yeah. to do with it. Well, I'm hearing people talking about 50 to 100% increases in some cases in their insurance premiums. I'm if seeing it. You can get it. This well, is a. Now, come on. You always say that, but you always yeah. can get it. It's just a matter of price. Okay. You're right. I can underwrite a burning building at the right premium with the right deductible. You are correct, sir. Okay. So it's not real. a matter of whether or not you can get it. It's a matter of whether or not you're willing to pay for it. But, but I mean, I'm, while I'm hearing anecdotally 50 to hundred percent in many cases, you know, in the reports that I'm reading, it's really expected to be overall like 10 to 25%, which is still a big increase. Uh, but, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> excuse me, it seems to be focused on catastrophic areas like, <clears throat> like my throat right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, the coasts mm -hmm. where, you know, you have hurricanes, tornado alley, you know, uh, hail alley, that kind of thing. Are, do you think we're going to see it beyond that? throughout the whole country? Oh, yeah. I think underwriting, just like uh, commercial lending underwriting, is going to get a lot stronger because part of this is going to be, in my mind, usage. I mean, if it's an office use, then yeah, probably no problem. But you get into industrial where people are packing vape products and growing cannabis and all kinds of stuff that have a wider use than we've ever experienced before. I think that's going to be tough. I think underwriters are going to look at that stuff heavily and surcharge it or put it through 
ENS, excess and surplus lines, you won't be able to write it through your primary primary carriers. Gotcha. I think we both need to be underwritten by Crown Royal this morning because <laughs> our throats. <laughs> Just a little recipe. <laughs> is, that, is that is actually insured by them or just self-insured using them? <laughs> I said underwritten. Okay. okay. Our final one, and this is in some ways the scariest for me, is NAR under fire. Now, NAR is the National Association of Realtors. So why am I talking about it? That's residential. I don't care about residential. I do now. Yeah, I wish it was only Walk residential. Walk through this. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean- the National Association of Realtors is a trade association, first mm -hmm. of all. Uh, it does not have any regulatory authority. It's not like they um, can create any kind of legislation for anything. Oh, but but the, they do have a the very- The largest lobbyists. Yeah, they're a huge lobby firm, uh, or not firm, organization. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, in Texas, it's TREPAC, Texas Real Estate Political Action Committee, I think is what that stands for. Um, national has uh, one as well. So they definitely try like a lot of industries to influence legislation, but they aren't, they don't have the direct um, ability to do that. So, you know, the big problem is, you know, as everybody knows there, they lost a court case, which is now on appeal and uh, which kind of accuses them of colluding and uh, price. Well, flesh that out just a little bit. <clears throat> well, colluding how and. Well, the claim is that through the use of MLS, multiple listing services, that when you go to sell your house, that you use a realtor, the realtor posts that on the MLS with, and, and, you know, the claim is that they all charge the same percentage and that there is then an automatic agreement once it's posted in an MLS to split that fee with the buyer's agent. And that that is then price fixing. Um, and I, you know, I don't know all the details of the case. I don't know, you know, sort of what the um, arguments were pro and con necessarily. I know that in MLS that, you know, and I don't use it regularly. I do subscribe to it just because I want to make sure I can look at it and try to see if there's any properties, commercial properties that might be right for a client if it's not listed in CoStar. And it doesn't happen often, but occasionally we'll see that where a residential agent got a commercial listing and only put it in MLS, didn't know to put it in CoStar. But, I sent uh, you an alert this morning that yes. I got. And, uh, and so um, the argument is that, you know, that that is price fixing, but I can tell you in MLS, what the listing agent does is they say the buyer agent commission, BAC, they have as an acronym, the BAC is X and they'll put in some percentage and it's not always the same percentage. You know, it could be, you know, if I decide to take a listing and I put it in MLS and I agree to only, and I'll just make up numbers, I'm only going to give a 1% fee to the buyer this time or 3% another time or zero another time. Any of those things are possible. So, um, so I'm not quite sure I understand the price fixing argument when it does give the ability for uh, the listing agent to tell the buying agents what he or she's willing to give them. Um, I know part of the concern was that uh, the fact that the the buyer, I mean, sorry, the, the, the seller was paying all the commissions for both the buyer and seller agents. Again, I have a bit of a problem with that because even though 
you know, if let's just say you have a, a um, hundred thousand dollar property just to be easy and you're going to um, have a 2% commission paid to the seller and a 2% paid to the buyer's agent. Well, that takes the, both of those amounts come out of the hundred thousand dollars, which is otherwise the proceeds to the seller. And so the argument is that the seller is always paying the commissions. Well, my argument That's is just like landlord and tenant. It is, but but my mm -hmm. argument is that it's not the same. It's not that the seller is paying for it because the buyer is the one writing the buyer the pays for everything. For everything. Mm -hmm. It just happens to be when you put it on a closing statement that it's shown on the seller's side. So you know, if if I was representing a a buyer and we went to a seller and said, "Hey, we want to buy this property," and the seller's agent says, "Well, we're not gonna. There's no money in here for you. If you want to get paid, you got to get paid by your buyer." Well, all right, fine. Then I would say, all right, here's my offer. And it does include a, a commission in there for me because it needs to be wrapped into the overall price so that the buyer can get that all financed properly. Mm -hmm. But you you need to evaluate it, seller, as whatever the net number is net of our commission. That's how you should evaluate it. And I actually had this exact thing happen. A few years ago, we sold an office building uh, in West Plano and we had agreed to a commission split, which was, uh, we had a commission agreement, I should say that and this was the commission for the first million dollar of the value. And then it stepped down after that. And so we offered that to, you know, a, a certain amount of that to the, uh, to the buyer's agent. Well, the buyer's agent came and says, well, no, we want double that. They didn't want any step down. They wanted the full, you know, initial amount on the entire value not just on the first million and the final price ended up being like seven and a half million dollars. So this was a lot of additional money. So what we did is we said, fine, what we're going to do is we're going to negotiate our deal as if you're only getting paid the commission that we are, you know, that we've agreed to, to give you out of the amount of the total. And then once we've agreed on that, if your buyer is willing to increase the, the price of the property uh, of the contract amount, to cover the additional commission you want, fine with us. And they did exactly that. Their buyer was willing to pay more for that. So, so there is there are ways to deal with this. I think a part of the problem, though, is that in residential, everything's focused on consumer protection. And a lot of consumers do not know that they can buy and sell properties without a realtor at all or without a real estate agent. Realtor, by the way, is just a trademark name mm -hmm. that the National Association of Realtors assigns to anybody that's a member of the National Association of Realtors. So I am a realtor. You are a realtor because we are members of the NAR. Um, why are we a member of NAR? And I have to get the forms. <laughs> well, it's not really even the forms because the forms are typically written by the, the state organizations. So we're also members of Texas Association of Realtors, and I do like their forms. We do use their forms. We're also members of the North Texas Commercial Association of Realtors. So all of these things are subsidiary uh, branches of the National Association. The, your Collin County Association of Realtors, your Metro Texas Association of Realtors in Dallas County, all these are different um, subsidiary organizations of NAR. But the real reason why I'm a member of NAR is because I have two professional designations, one of which is CCIM and the other is SIOR, both of which are 
subsidiaries of the National Association of Realtors. So to have those designations, I must be a member of NAR. And if you must be a member, everyone that is licensed under you must also be members. Exactly. So and I guess a part of me that is gets really frustrated with this is you don't have to have an agent to buy a home. You In the state of Texas, you can just buy and sell, put a FISBO sign out in your front yard and sell it. The problem is the government has passed so many laws to protect the consumer that it's really ill-advised for the consumer to do it without an agent who can right. walk through the laws we passed to protect the consumer. It's just <laughs> me nuts. You, you, you raise a really good point there. I, I, I totally agree with you. It, the number of times you have to sign your name to buy a house today versus mm -hmm. when you and I did it up the first time in 1987. Hey, 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 beep. <laughs> is probably four times as many times. And in fact, if you if you look at the number of times the seller has to sign their name versus the number of times the buyer has to sign the name, it's just it's crazy. Um, well, so let's get back to this. So yeah. So how the, does this affect our life, or how do well, we think it may affect our life? The the stakes just got raised a bit because Zillow has now sued MLSs directly. Uh, because they're claiming that there's some sort of integrate integration. So whenever you go to um, schedule the showing on a house, um, the the seller's agent doesn't show up. You know, they just have a, mm -hmm. a Supra key box on the front door. And then the buyer's agent contacts this scheduling agency or, or organization or company, which then gives them the ability to get into the, the into the house. So they're kind of coordinating all that. And um, so because of that, uh, I guess Zillow has some sort of a service called showing time and they feel like they're not getting adequate um, opportunities to compete. Uh, and so they're suing the MLSs. So that kind of raises the stakes. Other entities have been sued now as well. And well, then and other states are being brought into the original lawsuit. There's a lot of copycat suits coming online now. And then there's also the sexual harassment lawsuit from the, uh, you know, the former president of NAR was um, accused of sexual harassment. So the New York Times actually uh, has predicted that NAR may go bankrupt because of all this. Wow. I, I didn't read that article. I, I just saw more of a headline type thing on that. So I had not seen that yet. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty surprising. So I'm thinking that with all this happening, I think the, the membership of NAR is going to go down. Um, you know, I would not be a member of NAR, quite honestly, if it weren't for those two professional designations. So if those two uh, organizations could somehow separate from NAR, fine with me. You know, I, I don't think I would really care one way or the other. Um, so, you know, NAR is heavily focused on on the residential and consumer uh, mm -hmm. aspects and not so much on resident, I mean, on commercial, mm -hmm. they've tried to change that, but it, you know, it's been a, a tough row for them to, to go. So um, anyway, so I think it's going to continue to be under fire for the foreseeable future. I don't see us ever getting, at least not in the next 10 years, getting to where it is in Europe where buyers agents sell, uh, pay their, their agent, I'm sorry, buyers pay their agents, sellers pay their agents, separately. Um, and there's really no mingling of that, no sharing of commissions. No, you know, I get the listing and I'm going to share my commission with you. If you represent the buyer, I have a hard time envisioning that, but who knows, you know, the right court case could change all of it. 
I think a lot of this still is going to come down to the old adage of cash is king. If you are not financing the purchase, a lot of this goes away. Your negotiating power is a lot stronger, and the way it closes out is going to be different. I'm not constrained to wrap all this up in my note, because guess what? There ain't going to be a note. Um, in a way, I kind of I, I see what you're saying, and and I think there may be some um, wisdom in that. Um, you know, I think it's a bit more structural uh, right now. I think the bigger issue is not so much the financing as it is uh, whether or not you use an agent at all. You know, you and I sold a house many years ago where we just stuck a for sale by owner sign in the front yard. And, um, and then we hung another little sign underneath it that said brokers welcome. Well, brokers protected or whatever. Yeah. And, and so I think the, the message we were trying to say was we're not trying to go around the buyer's agents. We just don't feel the need to have a seller's agent. Because I was, you know, licensed at that time. Yeah, I was commercial only. I, I did not have access to the MLS. I was not going to list it in MLS. Um, it was just drive-bys. And so, and we, ultimately we had somebody come by and look at the house and they said, you know, and we, uh, we held open houses and, uh, and somebody came along and said, we really like the house, but we have an agent. Would that be okay? And we're like, yeah, fine. Just, you know, make that part of your offer. And so we negotiated from the perspective of what's our net cost. And we did not pay a full, you know, full um, at that time, what people would assume was the full uh, fee for the buyer's agent. We negotiated something. So I would just encourage people, you know, if you feel like you're not getting the value or you don't see the value in using an agent, don't try it without it. You know, I, when we, we sold a house out in the county, out in the country at one point, and we thought, you know, we're not going to, we don't need a, a, a an agent on this. We quickly figured out, yeah, we, we do because you know what, put a sign in the yard, run an ad in the paper, nobody shows up. And once you put it in MLS, then all of a sudden there was interest. Mm -hmm. And uh, so every situation is different, uh, but at least evaluate that. I apologize. I just realized I forgot to deaden my phones before we got started. <laughs> well, okay. I so any other crystal ball predictions we need to go over? Um, I'm yeah. going to win the lottery. The Cowboys are going to win the Super Bowl. You feeling lucky? Anything else you want to talk about? or uh, Not on any of those things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, thanks for being a party to our prediction New Year's podcast. We look forward to seeing you the rest of the year. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. And just a reminder to send in questions to see if we can stump Bob. Not going to happen. We really appreciate your taking the time to tune into this episode. We would love it if you would give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening to this on. And if you are on our YouTube channel, we would love to read your feedback in the comment section. Also, be sure to subscribe so you get notified when we publish new episodes. Thanks and see you next time. Bye.